Well, gentlemen, I, I think uh, <clears throat> I think it'd be wise, uh, not out of tradition, to go to the Lord in prayer to start, but just because we're needy. That's that's why we do that. So let's bow before Him. And Father, we we are uh, men with needs, uh, every single one of us. But we, um, Lord, we want to be careful not to start there because we want to thank you for what you've done for us. Um, so often, Lord, the, the pressures of the moment uh, drive us to ask, and we forget to be thankful. And we don't ever want to do that. We uh, sometimes, Lord, sometimes it's just good for us to take a step back and look over the last month, the last six months, the last year, and see uh, your faithfulness and see your provision and see your care. We have seen you come through time and time again at just the right moment. Uh, if, it had been, if it had been an hour later, we would have been in trouble. But it wasn't an hour later. It was right on time. And that encourages us as we consider where we are right now, uh, facing a new set of needs, because this Christian life is from faith to faith. There's never a time in our lives when we're not living by faith. There's never a time in our uh, walk on this trail where we are not in need of you. So we thank you for what you have done. We thank you that your grace has brought us this far. We thank you that your grace is not going to quit, that your mercy is not going to stop. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that it flows like Niagara. Niagara one day could potentially uh, dry up. Your grace will never dry. Uh, it, will, it will never experience drought. So, Father, we thank you for what you've done. We thank you for the kind of God you are. Uh, we thank you that you had no beginning, that you've always been. That boggles our minds and it stretches our minds, and we can't think about that too long. But we thank you that it's true. You are, uh, you are completely self-sufficient, and we are not. So we pray, and we come to you. Feed us uh, from the Word of God. We can't live by bread alone, Jesus told us, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Thank you that we have Bibles. Thank you for the men who died over the ages translating the Bible, putting it into a common tongue that could be understood. Thank you for your Word and its accessibility to us. Give us teachable hearts so that we can grow from it now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Five years ago, I doubt if uh, a handful of guys in here knew who Mark Cuban was. I'd never, I don't remember hearing of Mark Cuban five years ago. But uh, we sure know who he is now. And he needs to trade and get someone who can rebound underneath <laughs> and who can do some damage underneath. That, that's just an editorial comment. That has nothing to do with Nehemiah. Uh, we didn't know about Mark Cuban five years ago, but we know about him now. Mark Cuban was a guy that started the company. He had some vision with a friend of his. They got in on this internet thing. They got in on this dot-com thing, and, uh, a lot, which a lot of guys did, and a lot of guys were making money. But the thing that stood out about Cuban and his partner was that uh, they got out in time. They sold out in time. He had the foresight, you, you know, you got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them, Proverbs says. <laughs> uh, okay, that's, that's Kenny Rogers. But there's some wisdom there, isn't it? And uh, the name of the game a lot of times in life is, is knowing when to fold. And, uh, and they folded at the right time and sold that company at the height, basically, uh, took that money, and suddenly we heard about this guy who was buying the Mavericks. And uh, now everybody knows who he is. Um, Mark Cuban has sort of experienced the American dream in that uh, he had a plan, uh, had a vision, had a dream, uh, worked hard, worked uh, long hours to make it happen. It happened, and he sold on top. 
That, that's success. That's the way to do it. That's the Horatio Alger story. Now, there are a lot of guys who worked hard, a lot of guys who had dreams, a lot of guys who saw the potential of the technology, and they jumped in and they raised money, and, and we all know the story, and they put it together, and they watched it climb and climb and climb and climb, and they thought, this is never going to end. In fact, we were told it's a new paradigm, the same thing they were saying, saying in Holland in the 1500s with the tulip craze, when tulip bulbs, one tulip bulb would sell for $40,000 in our money today. Can you imagine such a thing? It'll never end. It's a new paradigm. Well, it ended. And Cuban went out on top. Uh, Bob Buford, uh, some of you guys have read his book, Halftime. But uh, he has another book that's been out maybe a year or so called Stuck in Halftime. Now, what is halftime? Well, halftime is um, midway through life. It's halfway through life. And I like that phrase because when you hit about 40, you're at halftime. You may not want to realize that, but that's where you are. Um, there's a first half of life, and then there's a second half of life. Um, the guys that are in the second half can't believe they're there. The guys who are in the first half think they'll never be in the second half. But you'll get there. But there's this, uh, there's this period in between the first half and the second half that he calls halftime. It's what we, what we do in football. Uh, in his book, he talks about um, uh, an acquaintance of his who uh, had done very well in the first half. He had lived the dream. Uh, he'd climbed the ladder. He had been very successful financially, had built a company, uh, was strongly considering selling the company because there were some suitors that were very interested, and he could walk away with more money than he had ever dreamed of having. Now, one of the things, uh, Buford talks about halftime, and he says, one of the things that happens in, in halftime, somewhere when you're in that 37 to 43, roughly, period of time, is that... Uh, if, if you've been able to do well, there are some traps. And one of the traps is the trap of what he calls leisure. Seeking leisure and uh, pursuing leisure. Um, it's, it's, it's really the current American dream. Not only to be successful, but then be able to sell and do anything you want and not have to go into the office and not have to work as hard. How many times do we hear this? Uh, a, a guy is leaving his position to spend more time with what? His family. Football coaches do that. CEOs do that. Everybody does that. Uh, they may spend more time on the golf course. They may spend more time, uh, you know, big game hunting. They, most guys rarely, there are some exceptions, actually wind up spending more time with the family. Now, we all want more family time. That's a good thing. But... Um, you just can't sit around the house all day. You just can't sit around the kitchen all day. There's, there's a, men aren't designed to do that. There's a place for that. It's a part of our lives. But we are men, and God has called us to be productive. Productive. Uh, this friend of Buford's, had, uh, in the first half of life, had done well. He had achieved, and he had the opportunity to set himself up for the second half. Um, but there is the trap, there is the trap of, uh, of leisure. And uh, this guy's name is Roger Curvins. And he was just about ready to sell and to experience his dream. And then he thought, you know, before I do this, maybe I had to talk to a couple other guys who've, who've, who've already done it. Because I got a good thing going here, and yeah, I'm working hard, but do I really want to sell this company? Do I really want to make the break? So what he did was he had lunch with these two friends of his who had just sold their companies in the last couple of years. And he met them, and uh, here's what he found out. He says, uh, Buford says, the day was almost there when all he had to do was sign his name and he would have enough cash to do whatever he wanted for the rest of his life. That's when he decided to meet with his two longtime friends who had sold their companies a few years earlier. Uh, Curvin said, the first thing they told me was that they had new wives. 
I'd known one of them for 15 years, the other for seven years. Both of them had cashed out to spend more time with their families. And they both had new wives. Uh, the conversation never got much beyond their toys and leisure activities. And the more they talked, the more terrified my friend became. Instead of being excited about their lives, they seemed confused and disconnected, still wondering what to do with their lives. Now, these were guys that had made it. These were guys who had sold at the top. There was a, a creeping sensation of, uh-oh, something has happened to my friends, Kervin told me. On the way out of the restaurant, uh, Roger was still waiting for confirmation from them that cashing out to Leisure World was the best thing they had ever done. But when he asked one of the guys, who was an active Christian, that exact question, all he got in return was, you know, I don't know. I don't know. Because of his conversation with these two men, Roger decided to track down every person he could find who, in search of a better life, had cashed in on their success, seeking relief from the pressures of the first half of life. They were doing well, but they still had tremendous responsibility. So he's not going to talk to two guys. He's going to go and find as many guys as he can before he signs on the dotted line. He found 36 guys in that position. And he sat down with each one, uh, and he interviewed them. They were all between the ages of 40 and 50 and turned their businesses into at least $5 million in cash in their pockets. Roger said, the first three guys I talked to were just like me. They loved God, loved their families, and were in the same age bracket, 42, 43, 44. They had all had a strategy. They wanted to spend more time with their families and develop their own souls. Within a year, all three were divorced. All, through, all three blew at least a million dollars on new toys, bigger boat, bigger car, bigger plane. They all thought they had a solid game plan, but like Mike Tyson said about his boxing foes, they all had a strategy until they got hit. Each of these guys stepped into a stream, and they didn't realize the current was so strong until they got swept away. Of the 36, guy he, of the 36 guys he interviewed, a remarkable, a remarkable 32 had gotten divorced. All of them locked their targets on a new toy or affair, but experienced tremendous depression after acquiring each new thing. What seemed like paradise turned out to be just the opposite. These guys tried what most of us would say is the ideal arrangement. Money is no object. You don't have to go to work. You can travel, play, and buy all you want. And instead of waiting until these guys were too old to enjoy their freedom, they did it while they were quite young. Somehow it just didn't pan out the way they thought it would. I talked to a number of guys over the last year who um, are regretting the financial moves they made over the last few years. If they had gotten out of the stock market at a certain point, they'd be sitting pretty. But see, they didn't get out. And now, what they're living with is they're living with some regret because of what they lost. My question to you is, did you really lose anything compared to these guys? Because you see, these guys made it. These guys cashed out. These guys were going to spend more time with their families and spend more time developing their souls, and they didn't do too well. Maybe it's a blessing in disguise. Maybe God has been good to you. Maybe God has been gracious that you didn't sell at the top. Because, you see, leisure can be a trap. Uh, we, we live in a culture that, uh, that, uh, that loves leisure. We, we love the American dream of the good life. And there's a place uh, for rest. There is a place for living a balanced life. But at the same time, uh, we are called to be productive, and we are called to contribute. Um, uh, in Nehemiah's time, they didn't do a lot of studies on leadership. They just lived. Uh, we do a lot of studying on leadership. Um, there was a study that came out of Yale about... Um, 20 years ago, called The Seasons of a Man's Life, and a uh, book about that size, where they began to track men, and they began to do a study that, at the time the book was published, the study was 20-some years old, and they had watched these guys develop from college 
then into their 20s, choosing a career, getting married, then into their 30s, 40s. Some of them were into their 50s, and they tracked these guys. They, they didn't do studies like that in Nehemiah's day. Um, Nehemiah was a Jew who was in exile. He was not living in his own country. Uh, his country had been uh, uh, conquered. Uh, it had been destroyed. Uh, he was uh, born and raised in, uh, in what is now Persia. Um, but he has a remarkable story because uh, he had ascended to a position of great prominence. He was the cupbearer to the king. Now, let's take our Bibles and turn to Nehemiah. Because we're going to jump into chapter 2 tonight. And we're, we're going to see that Nehemiah is a guy who in the first half of life had made it. Now, we don't know, uh, we don't know how old uh, Nehemiah is uh, in the events here that are taking place. But I think it's safe to assume uh, that he's not in his 20s. And I would say it's probably safe to assume that uh, he's probably late 30s. I, I'm, I'm guessing. I can't prove that. But the position that he found himself in uh, requires experience, requires some um, uh, education, requires some um, skill in dealing with people and some tact and some diplomacy. He's the cupbearer to the king. And as we talked about, uh, I think it was last week or the week before, the cupbearer was a trusted confidant. Now, he was the guy that would taste the wine given to the king and would eat the food before the king had it, just to see if it was poisoned or not. But he was more than that. Uh, he had to be someone who had the king's ear. He had to be someone uh, whom the king trusted. He had to have judgment. He had to have wisdom. Uh, in, in some administrations, he actually acted as the chief financial officer for the king. It, it was a position of prominence. It was a position of influence. He was with the king all the time. He was in the inner circle. Uh, he wasn't a middle, uh, um, he wasn't a mid-level government bureaucrat. He was in the inner circle. He had an office right off the Oval Office with, uh, with access to the king. Uh, he was with him all the time. So he was a guy, he was a guy that had made it. First half of life, he was up there. But there's a crisis. Uh, he realized that he wasn't there just by accident, as Moses realized at a certain point in his life that he wasn't where he was just by accident. When Moses was in his 30s, Moses lived in the palace of Pharaoh. Uh, Stephen tells us in the book of Acts that Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. Uh, Flavius Josephus, the great Jewish historian, tells us that Moses was a great military leader. Uh, the Ethiopians had overrun the Egyptian city of Memphis. Who was it that took an army and, and did an all-night march and came upon the Ethiopians and surprised them and won back the city of Memphis? It was Moses. Now, that's not in the Bible. That's in Jew Jewish history. Moses was a guy who had tremendous education. He had tremendous uh, advantage. He had a tremendous network. He was being raised in Pharaoh's household. He was a Jew. He no more fit there than Nehemiah fit in the presence of a Persian king. But as we talked about a few weeks ago, it is God who assigns us to our post. And he was there for a reason. And Moses began to realize that he just wasn't there by accident because all of his people were in slavery. All of them. He was the lone exception. He'd been raised in the palace. And he was there for a reason. Esther, Esther is chosen as queen about 25 years or so before Nehemiah. And, and a great crisis comes on the scene. And her uncle Mordecai reminds her that perhaps for such a time as this, that's why you're in this position. Uh, there is a crisis that's going on, uh, and the crisis is that Nehemiah has gotten the report that the walls of Jerusalem are down, that they have been uh, burned, that they've been broken. Some of the exiles have gone back. A temple was built, but they're absolutely vulnerable, and the work has stopped. Now, what's interesting is 
the king who stopped the work on the walls that was being done, because uh, Zerubbabel went back and Ezra went back, the king who stopped the work was the man to whom Nehemiah reported, Artaxerxes. Uh, what he is going to ask Artaxerxes to do is to reverse that decision. Uh, there was a lot riding on this. Let's pick it up in Nehemiah 1, where he's praying to God, and in verse 11 he says, O Lord, I beseech thee, may thine ear be attentive to the prayer of thy servant and the prayer of thy servants who delight to revere thy name, and make thy servant successful today, and grant him compassion before this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. So he's in the inner circle, he's in the Oval Office. Now, he is praying this, if you'll notice, uh, back in chapter 1, verse 2, he says, it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital. This is when his brother shows up, and his brother tells him the report. His brother had been over to Jerusalem, and he asked him, hey, how are the exiles doing? How's it going in Jerusalem? Which is his country. It's his homeland. Uh, and his brother gives him the report. Things aren't going well. There's, there's trouble. The remnant's in trouble. They're under reproach. Uh, it, it's a sad situation. The walls are down. They're torn down. Uh, people are discouraged. Uh, that happened roughly in December, in that month that he mentions to us, uh, in verse 2, in the month of Kislev. Now note chapter 2, verse 1. It says, and it came about in the month of <clears throat> Nisan, or Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. There's a four-month period between chapter 1 and chapter 2. So what you got in chapter 1, he finds out what's happened, and then he begins to pray, and he begins to ask God to intercede, and he asks God to make a way to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, in chapter 2, uh, basically you're, you're into April, because he notes it for us here. So what happens in April? He's been praying, he's been seeking God. He says that the wine was before the king. I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had been sad in his presence. We're going to come back to this. So the king said to me, why is your face sad though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate desolate, and its gates have been consumed by fire. And the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it please the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Florida, to the city of my favorite golf courses, that I may play on it. That's not what he said. Uh, this guy here is not looking to retire. This guy is looking to be significant. Let's note what he says. If it please the king, and if your servant has found favor, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Then the king said to me, the queen sitting behind him, beside him, how long will your journey be, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress which is by the temple, for the walls of the city, and for the house to which I will go. And the king granted them to me, because the good hand of my God was upon me. There's a bundle of wisdom in those eight verses. Um, because what we're going to see here is we're going to see a guy who is available to God, who wants to be significant. We're going to see how he operates. And we're going to see, uh, we're going to see what his MO is. We're going to see what his strategy is. Um, Nehemiah was in a crisis. This, this was a huge situation that the walls of Jerusalem were down. It's hard for us to understand because we're Americans, because we live in a completely different culture. 
He's 800 miles to the east. He's in exile. Uh, they had been in captivity uh, for 70 years because of their history of unbelief. God had uh, judged them. God told them, if you don't follow me with your whole heart, eventually this is going to happen. And, and God, was, God was gracious and patient and long-suffering for hundreds of years. Finally, they go into captivity. Uh, Daniel went into that captivity. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego went into that captivity. Uh, Nehemiah was probably born in Persia. Uh, his parents had come over in the captivity. But, but now a remnant's going back, about 50,000, but they're in bad shape. And here this guy is in a strategic position. He's got the ear of the king. Um, uh, wouldn't it be great if, if uh, you could just pick up the phone and call George W. Bush, if you had that kind of relationship with him, and just encourage him and tell him what you're thinking and tell him that you're praying for him? I mean, there are some guys that have that kind of access, but there aren't many. There's just a handful. Nehemiah was one of the guys that had that kind of access. Uh, so there was a crisis in the nation, and he had been put in a position by God to do something about it. Now, I, I, I want to look at this guy. I want us to take a step back, and I want us to watch this guy, and I want us to note some things, because you can always learn from a leader. Uh, some of you guys have uh, heard John Maxwell speak. You guys know, you know John Maxwell? John's a piece of work. If, I mean, he, he's, a, he's an interesting dude. First time I ever heard John Maxwell was like 20 years ago. And he was just getting his thing started. He was pastoring in San Diego. I didn't know this guy from Adam. And he was starting this tape club that now is just huge. And here's why I remember it. There was a bunch of pastors there, probably 200 pastors. And he said, he said, I know some of you guys listen to Swindoll tapes and you listen to MacArthur tapes. Um, uh, you listen to, uh, and he mentioned probably two or three other well-known preachers. He said, so why should you listen to my tapes? He said, I'll tell you why. He says, because I listen to all of them, and I steal their stuff. <laughs> and by buying my tape, it'll save you a lot of, it was funny. I've never forgotten that. Um, he's an interesting guy. One of the things that, uh, uh, one of the things that, that John did when he was a young pastor, and he was just getting started, and he was in his 20s, he, uh, he'd read a book by a guy, some pastor, that would really impact him, and he'd call the guy up. He would plan his vacations around certain leaders that he wanted to meet. So if there was a leader, a guy had impacted him, his family vacation, and let's say this guy was in L.A., he was going to L.A. That's where their vacation was going to be because he wanted to meet this guy. And most pastors of large churches are busy and they don't have time to do that. John got so desperate, he'd actually call these guys, he'd actually write them, and he'd offer them $500 to have lunch with him. That's how desperate he was. Um, I, I find that a little extreme, to offer someone $500. But you see, what he wanted to do, he was, he was hungry to be the best leader that he could be. Um, now, I don't think that's how I'd go about it, but that's how he went about it. Um, the point, the point and the nugget that I take out of that is you can learn a lot by observing a good leader. You can learn a tremendous amount by observing a good leader. Uh, Nehemiah was a guy that was walking with God and who had a heart for God, and he loved God more than he loved his position. Uh, he, he loved God more than he loved his prominence. He loved God more than he loved his power. And he was a man after God's own heart. Uh, I want to give you about four shots on this guy tonight. And here's my first one. Because he's a leader. I mean, as you read through Nehemiah, and as you see all that this guy did, this guy, uh, the word that strikes me about Nehemiah is action. He was a man of action. Nehemiah was not passive. Uh, Nehemiah was not, uh, uh, I don't see this guy as laid back. I, I don't see this guy as, um, as low key. I think Nehemiah was a type A guy. You guys know what I mean when I say that, don't you? How many of you guys 
would consider yourselves, from what you know about type A personalities, you're kind of a type A personality. Yeah, okay. There'd be more of you, but they're dead. <laughs> type A personalities tend to go quick because they're so driven and they're so intense and they're so motivated to succeed. Um, uh, type A personalities can be hard to live with because they have this drive, they have this action, they have this, they're, they're not big on relationships usually. They're not one to sit around and talk about their feelings. They're not one to sit around and ask their wife how she's doing. Type A personalities, they want to, they want to take the hill. Would you agree with that? That's a type A personality. Driven is the word. Action is the word. I think Nehemiah was that kind of guy. But what I see here is, here's my point. Here's my first shot. Nehemiah was willing to wait on God before he took action. Now, where do I get that? I just get that from, from comparing the calendar. I just get that from comparing the daytimer here. From, from Kislev to Nissan, four months, from December to April. This was a crisis, this was huge, this was big. Uh, uh, the tendency is when you're a leader, and the tendency is when you're a young leader, the tendency is to just go in and fix it. Uh, the tendency is to go in and, and let's get this done and let's get this done now. He doesn't do that. The first thing that Nehemiah does is, is that he goes before God. We spent some time on that prayer. He goes before God. He calls on the name of God. He takes the promises of God, the covenant, puts them up before God. He, he confesses his sin before God. Uh, He's not going to move without a green light from God. Uh, immature leaders and, and uh, carnal leaders uh, run God's red lights. That's what they do. If you're a leader, there are going to be red lights in your life. There are going to be times when you're at an intersection and it's a critical intersection and you need to get through that intersection and God's going to give you a red light. That's tough. That's hard. Because you see the need, you see the issues, and see you're a leader. And what leaders tend to do, my brother-in-law, uh, my brother-in-law, Brian Owens, first time he met me, uh, he worked for Campus Crusade for Christ in Little Rock. And we were going, Mary and I were going to speak in California for a family life marriage conference. It was like 1986 or something. And uh, we were taking our kids because my folks were from there. And, you know, anyway, so we're all going out there. And uh, he's going to take us to the airport. Well, there was a power failure the night, that night. Our alarm didn't go off, and I wake up to this pounding on the door. I go downstairs, and it's Brian. And he introduced, I'd never met this guy before. He said, I'm, I knew he was coming. He said, hey, I'm here to take you. And the plane was going to leave like in, you know, an hour. And, and we weren't even dressed. So we threw the kids, I think we threw them in the luggage. And we, we just, we just, I mean, it was one of those crazy quick deals. And we, we get everything in his car. And I looked at it, and I realized we had a crisis. We needed to get to the airport. And I looked at him, he didn't know me from Adam. And I looked at him, and I didn't know him. I didn't know what he was like. I didn't know what he was like under pressure. I, didn't, I said to him, I'm driving. <laughs> I didn't ask him. I just said, I'm driving. And I hopped in, and I got behind the wheel. And I still remember coming down to that intersection, down on the bottom of the hill, and I had a red light. But I didn't have much time. So I looked that way, and I looked that way. And here's this little guy from Campus Crusade who's concerned about being filled with the Spirit, and I ran the red light. Uh, I didn't make the greatest impression on him that morning. But we made the plane. Now, there are times in life that are much more serious, and you want to move, and you want to take action. 
and there's a red light. Don't run that red light. That red light is there for a reason. Uh, type A personalities want to get it done, and they want to get it done now. They want to fix it, and they want to fix it now. I don't know what the issue is. It might be your marriage, something going on there. You, you want to fix it, and you want to fix it now. Um, well, sometimes you can't fix it and fix it now. It's going to take some time. There are times when God gives us a red light. Nehemiah prayed. He heard the need, and he had a red light for four months, and he didn't run the red light. He waited until God gave him a green light. That's the mark of a mature leader. That's the mark of a godly leader, is a willingness to wait on God until the right time. So well, how will I know God gives me a green light? You'll know. Uh, God has a way of making his green lights incredibly clear. When he's in it, you'll know he's in it. Uh, so that's, that's just my first principle, is that there's a willingness to wait before you take action. And... You know, the name of the game in life is timing, isn't it? It's timing. Uh, timing, you've heard this phrase, timing is everything. Well, let me ask you something. Who knows better about timing than God? At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. The right time. For him to die at the right time means that he would be on the face of the earth at the right time, that he would be born at the right time, that he would be conceived by the Holy Spirit at the right time, that the angel would appear to Mary and announce that this young virgin would have a... See, that's all timing, isn't it? It's all timing. It's been said that God has never been late. And it's also been said that God has never been early. God tends not to be early. And we get worried and we get anxious about that. Uh, because we see, we see a, a situation developing and fomenting, and, and we see ramifications, and we see the time getting very, very close, and we see the, top, the clock ticking, and, and, and it hasn't happened yet. Well, that's because it's not time. You say, well, it's... It's coming up in two weeks. Yeah, but you're not there yet. It, it's coming up in three days. Yeah, but yeah, but it's not there yet. It's coming up in. It's coming up in three minutes. Yeah, but you're not there yet. God is always on time. And there is great wisdom in learning to wait until God's timing is right. When He finally waits, when He waits, and God gives Him the green light. And how did he know he had a green light? Well, look at the text there. Uh, he's serving wine. Hey, it's just, it's just a regular day. It's just a normal day. And he's in there with the king. And it's in April. Uh, verse 1. Uh, king Artaxerxes, the wine's before him. I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence, although he was sad in his heart because of what was going on. So the king said to me, why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. Now, what's all that about? Well, let me tell you what that's about. Uh, th this was a whole different culture than we lived in. These kings had power. These kings had authority. And when you were in the presence of the king, you did not want to be sad because you did not want to make the king sad because these kings were temperamental. Do you remember that Esther, when she was, had that whole thing going on and, and uh, Haman was going to, uh, had this plot to kill all the Jews? And... Mordecai told her, you've been raised up for such a time as this, but she said, I can't go into the king's presence. And she's the queen. Because if I go into the presence and he doesn't grant the scepter, see, on a whim, he could have her killed. These, see, we don't relate to this. We don't understand this kind of power. I relate to it. Here's what I would think of. I, I would think Saddam Hussein. That's the kind of power the, this guy had, and he came from the same neighborhood. You need to understand that. This guy lived in the same subdivision, gated community, the whole thing. That's where this guy was from, you see? And we've heard these horror stories about Saddam Hussein 
and about, hey, this guy was not, this guy didn't go to my Moody Bible Institute. You understand what I'm saying? This guy, this guy was a Persian uh, pagan king that had a different set of rules and a different set of, uh, of morality. And he had, he had unbridled power. There was no stopping this guy. So to be sat in the king's presence was a big deal. That's why he goes on and says in verse 2, then I was very much afraid. Why was he afraid? Because if he, if he mishandles this, it could be his life, quite frankly. What do you think about those poor guys that are in the inner circle of Saddam Hussein? My gosh. And then those scientists over there are the guys. That you, I mean, those guys, are, they're just hoping they live today. They're just hoping they don't look at that guy cockeyed. Because that's, that's, that's how on edge this guy is. Now, he goes on here. Now, now, here's where he gets favor. And see, he didn't know this was the day. But suddenly the king says, hey, what's the matter? You're sad. And the king wants to know what's going on. Then I was very much afraid. But apparently, and obviously, he realizes this is the time. The king's inquiring. This is his green light. So what does he do? He goes through the intersection. And here's what he says. And I said to the king, let the king live forever, which is a good thing to say to a king. <laughs> Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Note here the diplomacy and the tact. He doesn't name the city. Does he? It was Jerusalem, but he doesn't say Jerusalem. What he does is he puts a spin on it in regard to his family. The city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate, and its gates have been consumed by fire. And immediately, because of the relationship, he's got the king's interest. See, he didn't make a political statement. He made a personal statement, and he had the king's favor. That, there was wisdom there. There's wisdom. Now, we're going to see, we're going to see about Nehemiah here that as he had been praying about this for four months, he had been thinking about it for four months. Um, but I'm getting ahead of myself. I, I want to draw your attention to a leadership principle that is inherent in Christianity. Uh, you're not going to get this at, at Harvard Business School. Isn't, isn't it a crack up that a lot of these business schools now, um, have you kind of followed this? They, in the last several years, over the last five, six, seven, eight years, they decided that they need to, te they need to be teaching ethics. And I was reading about this not too long ago, and um, they decided it's very important that they be teaching ethics in business school. Now, why is that important? Because ethics matter. I have a, I have a good friend, um, John Brandon, and... Uh, I've known John since he graduated from college, and John had always had a desire. He always felt like he was going to go in full-time ministry, and his heart's desire was always to go to Dallas Seminary. And when he got out of college, he didn't feel he was quite ready. He thought he needed a little experience. He didn't just want to go in the seminary. And he was offered a job in the Bay Area, and he took it. It was a small little company that was just getting started called Adobe. And uh, it started to do real well, and then it did real well, and it did real well. And uh, John got up to be, I think, I don't want to exaggerate this, I think John was the number four guy at Adobe. And he was in the church that I pastored. And, and uh, John was doing well. But even as he was doing well, we'd have, these, we'd have these discussions late at night about his desire to be in ministry. And uh, uh, it just, uh, it ju but he had a check. It wasn't, it, 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 with John, it was never the money. It just, he just couldn't, he just didn't feel that, that he was supposed to go on the seminary, yet he had this desire for a minute. He just couldn't figure it out. Well, the years have gone by, and, and John has moved, and he's done well. And I think John is now, and if this is, I, I want to be careful. We, we might have to. I don't know how we'll do this on tape. Maybe I'll call John and just see if it's true or not. But I like making things up because most people don't know if it's true or not. <laughs> but if I'm not mistaken, John is either four or five right now at Apple Computer. 
you've moved around some and all that. What, what's been interesting is about, because of the success John has had, over the last several years, um, uh, one of these business schools that decided they ought to be teaching on ethics, uh, one of the guys knew John and knew that John was a guy who, uh, who had some ethics because he watched him, and he said, hey, what's the chance of you coming over here and talking about John? Business school. That he taught, well, would you come over here and talk on ethics? And then, so what John has been doing the last several years is that John has been going into Harvard and Yale and Stanford and Dartmouth and all these different schools, in a bit, and he talks on ethics. And what John says is really interesting is he does a presentation and he got all these students in there. And then inevitably, before long, first two or three questions, someone will say, well, where do you get your ethics? Bingo. And suddenly, John has a ministry that uh, I don't know anybody from Dallas Seminary who has. Do you? Harvard tends not to call guys from Dallas Seminary <laughs> to speak to their business students. Isn't that interesting? John's had some success. But you see, it, it's, it's for a reason and it's for a purpose. Um, What I wanted to point out, here's my second point on Nehemiah. Nehemiah was willing to lose his life in order to achieve a higher good. He was willing to lose his life in order to achieve a higher good. Nehemiah had never read the book Looking Out for Number One. He'd never read the book Winning Through Intimidation. Uh, what Nehemiah did is what good Christian leaders do. Uh, Jesus said something about this. When Jesus said that he wanted us to take up our cross daily, deny what? Yourself and follow me. See, that's the difference between a Christian leader and just a leader, is a willingness to deny yourself. Uh, we, we've seen example after example uh, here recently of leaders who took every advantage and every opportunity to uh, take care of themselves. That's not what Nehemiah did. Nehemiah was willing to put his life on the line in order to achieve a higher good. At some point in your life, you will be called upon to do the same thing. It might not be your literal life, but it might be a dream that you have. It might be a hope. It might be something that you had hoped to achieve and something that you hoped to accomplish in your life, and in order for you to do what God is calling you to do, you're going to have to die to that dream and to that hope. It's going to happen to you. It's going to happen to every man who's serious about following Christ. Because we're to die to ourselves. We're to deny ourselves. Paul said, I die daily. It's not about, it's not about taking care of us. It's about taking care of the higher good. So that's going to involve other people. It's going to involve being a servant. It's going to involve uh, um, uh, humbling yourself, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago. It's, it's going to involve doing not what's best for you, but what's best for the higher good. And anyone that you admire, anyone that you admire historically, anyone that we consider to be a great leader and a great example is someone who has done that with their life. Who's the most respect? I, I mean, even in the media, uh, in, in the media over the last several years until she died, who was the most respected person in the media in the religious world? Mother Teresa. Yeah. She was a respected woman. Why? Now, doctrinally, we'd have some issues with her. But the thing we can agree on is she denied herself. And that had an incredible impact. I remember talking to a friend of mine who was at the presidential prayer breakfast. That's going to go on this week. Is it tomorrow? I don't know. Something like that. But he was at the one when Bill and Hillary were there and Alan Tipper were there and she was the featured speaker. And she took off on aborting babies. And, I mean, who's going to say it? Hey, if Jerry Falwell had been in there, well, they wouldn't have had him in there. 
But Mother Teresa, they were applauding and everything, and she takes off and she says, give me the babies. And you could watch the film and you could watch them squirming. <laughs> it was great. She wasn't trying to make them squirm, she was just telling the truth. You see, uh, people, uh, People who love God and are mature leaders are willing to honor God even if it will cost their life. So, uh, at some point, and some of you guys are probably there right now. There's probably an issue in your life where you're having to die to something. Well, then die to it. Because it's not about you. Jesus said, unless the seed falls into the ground and what? Dies. You ever have corn on the cob? You ever plant corn? That seed's got to die before you can have the fruit. Somebody's got to die to have the fruit. You're going to be called to die to something. I'm going to be called to die to something. But see, we live in a culture where men don't want to die. See, in order to keep that marriage together, you're going to have to die to what you want to do. But guys won't do that, so they, see, they're upset, and they, so they want to find some new woman. They want to find some new woman with perfect breasts. Right? Perfect legs. Perfect thighs. My gosh, they sound like Colonel Sanders, don't they? <laughs> yeah, they're all screwed up. Why? Because they're screwed up in their thinking. So I want, you know, I want a new model. I want, hey, that's not a, that's not a car. That's your wife. See, the problem is not her. The problem is you and your immaturity. You had four kids, maybe you wouldn't have perfect thighs either. You know what I'm talking about? So get over it and grow up. I mean, look in the mirror. You don't look so hot yourself. You know what I'm talking about? But see, all the time we have guys that won't die to that. They're, they're all, all they care about is them, and so they kill families. Christian guys. Third observation about Nehemiah. You didn't know that was in Nehemiah, did you? Uh, third principle, and I, and I really touched on this earlier. Nehemiah was not looking for leisure. He was looking for significance. At this point in his life, he, he wasn't looking for leisure. He was looking for significance. And, and let me give you another one right behind it. Uh, Nehemiah wasn't looking for a promotion. He was willing to make a lateral move. Let me say that again. Nehemiah wasn't looking for a promotion. He was, looking, he, he was willing to make a lateral move. Because that goes back to the greater good. Uh, interestingly enough, he later was appointed governor. But that's not what he was after. That's not what he was asking. He was asking to be relieved for X amount of time in order to do something for the higher good of the glory of God and for the people of God. So it, it wasn't in his mind about his career. He didn't, he didn't think, well, if I go do this, you know, I'm going to be gone. I'm going to be 800 miles away. It's going to take me a couple months to pull this off. You know, what if somebody else comes in? The king forgets, you know, out of sight is out of mind. He's not thinking that way. Never enters his mind. He's thinking about what God wants him to do. There was some depth in this man. Uh, years ago, I heard Howard Hendricks say, if, I heard him say, if you, if you worry about the depth of your ministry, God will take care of the breadth of your ministry. D don't worry about all that other stuff. Um, now, something else. Uh, let, me, let me give you, let me give you a, a, another principle here. Praying and planning are not contradictory. Uh, praying and planning are not contradictory. Now, you say, where do you get that? Well, I get it from this, that for four months, we, we read about the one prayer that he prayed. But that wasn't the only prayer that he prayed because for four months he was in this crisis. As, as he prayed, he was waiting on God. He had a red light. He was waiting for God. He's the cupbearer of the king because there was one man there was one man who could sign a memo and get him what he needed to have done, and it was the king. When God gives him the green light, and he didn't know it was going to be that day, when God gave him the green light, I want you to notice 
that he stepped in with a plan. As he prayed, he sought God for a plan. And it's a very clear plan. Because, you know, you start rolling here. He tells him in 5, I want to go rebuild the walls of the city. Look at verse 6. King said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will your journey be? When will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a definite time. The king didn't say, well, how long is this going to take? And he says, well, uh, well, you know, let me get back to you on that. He gave him a definite time. It'll take this long. And then, look at the next thing. You got this give and take now. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, now catch this. This guy was prepared. If it pleases the king, let letters be given me. See, he's got a green light. So he's going through it now. He gives me the time. If it pleases the king, let letters be given me for the governors of the provinces beyond the river, that they may allow me to pass through until I come to Judah. He doesn't want to get hung up at the border. Then he goes on and says, and a later day, Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest. Did that just pop in his mind at that moment? No. He thought about it. Why Asaph? Because he runs the forest. What's the big deal about the forest? It's not a smoky bear issue. He needs, he needs lumber. That he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress, which is by the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house to which I will go. And the, cre- the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. You see that? So he prayed. Now when you pray, are you passive? No. When you pray, you go before the Lord and you say, Lord, I need you to show me. I need you to lead me. I need you to guide me. Lord, I, I need you to go ahead of me. I need you to give me wisdom. And then as, as you wait on God, and as you wait on His timing, things are going to start falling in place. You say, well, how does that work? I don't know how it works. You just wait on God. God will give you the wisdom that you need to put the plan together. It's just common sense. And as someone I heard recently say, common sense is not so common. It's just not praying and praying and praying. This guy had a plan. Uh, nothing wrong with organization. Nothing wrong with planning as long as it's brought under the sovereignty of God and under the wisdom of God and we don't go barging ahead with our own plans. Lord, how do you want to go about this? That's prayer. And then he got a plan. And he was prepared. When the guy asked him, he had answers. He had answers because he had sought God. I remember what Jesus said to his disciples. He said, they're going to take you up before the authorities. And don't worry about what what you're going to say, because in that hour, it will be given to you. See, sometimes God doesn't give it to you way in advance. Sometimes he gives it to you just before you need it. But he'll give you what you need. Fact of the matter is, as we go through life, you know, I'd venture to say that we're all facing situations right now. I'd venture, I just think we are. If, If we could just go around the room and talk about it, I bet you every guy in this room, you've got a situation before you that's somewhat critical and you don't know how the heck to proceed and you don't know how to fix it. I've got one. I bet you've got one. And I don't have a green light on this thing. So what am I doing? I'm praying about it. And I just had God answer a big one for me and I'm grateful. But now I'm in another one. Isn't that kind of how it works? Okay? Whole different set of circumstances. Um, But what these circumstances do is they keep me dependent on Him. They they keep me on my knees. They keep me on my face before God. Then, God, I need your wisdom here. I need your leadership. I need you to show me how to navigate this. I need you. So Mary and I talk about it. We pray about it. And how how are we going to navigate this? I don't know right now. But but you know what I think is going to happen? I think God is going to give me the wisdom to navigate it. Because I've seen Him do it before. Turn with me to Psalms. Go over to the right real quick. You say, which Psalm? Go to uh, Go to Psalm 37. Psalm 37, 3. Here's what it says. Trust in the Lord and do good. I mean, this is real simple. This is real basic stuff. It doesn't say trust in the Lord and, uh, and excuse sin or rationalize. Trust in the Lord and do good. You do what's right. Be obedient to the Lord. You screw up, say, Lord, I screw up. Forgive me. I'm sorry. Get back on the... You walk with God. Trust in the Lord and do good. 
dwell in the land, and the New American Standard says, cultivate faithfulness. But in the margin of the New American Standard, it says, trust in the Lord and do good, dwell in the land, and feed on his faithfulness. I'm going to tell you something, you can live off that verse. You just live off it. You got a crisis, you got a situation in front of you, you're not sure how it's going to work, you're not sure how, Lord, I don't know, you know what you do? You just show up every day, you give your life, to, you say, Lord, I'm yours again. I'm yours today. I need leadership. And Lord, I don't know. I need wisdom. And Lord, what I'm going to do today, I'm going to feed on your faithfulness. Not, not on mine. I'm going to try and be faithful, but Lord, I'm going to mess up. I know that. But I'm going to feed on your faithfulness. I'm going to trust in you to navigate me through. As you navigated me through this, and you navigated me through that, and you got me through that and that. And Lord, if it's, if it's, if it's a red, and my wife and I are sensing it's red, we're not moving. We're stopping. We're staying put. Maybe I want to say something to somebody real bad, but you know what? I don't think I'm supposed to say anything. Well, then don't say anything. Maybe it's not time. Just wait. When it's time to say something, he'll give you a green light. This is how God, this is how God leads us. You keep that Bible open. You keep your heart open. You keep open to good counsel. And he'll walk you through it. He'll lead you. He led Nehemiah. But you watch those, you watch those lights. Wouldn't it be nice if they were just real clear, like red? So here's a principle. If you're not sure, don't move ahead. Because James says, if something isn't of faith, if you can't do it out of faith, then it's what? He says it's sin. If you can't go ahead with clear confidence, don't you do it. Until you get that green light. I'm going to pray, and then we're all going to pray, okay? Let's bow our heads. We find ourselves, Lord, in different places that we've never been before. We... Uh, We've never been down this stretch of trail before, and we've never faced this particular situation before. It's different for every guy. Um, every situation is different. Every circumstance is different. But, the, um, but it's a heightened state of, uh, of alarm because people's lives are involved. And, 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 Lord, without knowing the specifics of each man's situation, we can know the pressure of each situation. Uh, sometimes, Lord, it seems like a fog descends on the path that's ahead of us, and it's not clear. So we come to you because, uh, because you see all things and you know all things. So, Father, I pray for every one of us that uh, as we're facing these different issues of life, that our trust would be in you and that we would walk by faith and not by sight because we can't see the answer. And we can't see how you're going to fix it any more than Nehemiah could see four months before how you were going to put all this together. Uh, these situations can be very threatening as his situation was very threatening. Uh, Lord, this guy lived a long time ago. We're living right now. But you're the same God, and you've given us your word, and uh, you want the same heart response from us that, that you had from Nehemiah. Uh, you've promised to give us wisdom. If any of us lack wisdom, James said, let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally and without reproach. We ask for wisdom for what's ahead of us, Lord. We don't walk away from you. We don't ignore you. We listen to you. And Lord, as, here's the other thing I pray for. As you show us the next step, may we be obedient men. Don't let us be stupid. Don't let us be foolish. Don't let us ignore your counsel. Let us walk in the step that you make clear before us. We've seen you do some tremendous things in our lives. We've seen you walk us through difficult places. We've fed on your faithfulness in the past. We feed on your faithfulness today. We pray these things in your name.
So guys, here's what we're going to do. Um, we're going to continue this, uh, this prayer, this time of prayer, because it's the most important thing we can do. And uh, we've been breaking up in threes and fours. Now, some of you guys don't know the guys around you. That's okay. We don't want anyone to feel uncomfortable. I'm going to do this again. I said this last week. I'm going to say it again. We don't want anybody feeling uncomfortable. We don't want you feeling under pressure. But we don't want guys walking out of here who've got needs in their life. And not everyone's going to say, yeah, I got this need. But some of you guys do. This is a time to get some guys to pray for you. Bear one another's burdens. Let's fulfill the law of Christ. That happened last week. We, we had guys last week who were talking with some guys they really didn't know, and they wound up getting together this week. So guys are walking through issues together. Um, we just don't want to be hearers of the word, do we? We want to be doers. So you know what? Take, let's take some initiative. Grab a couple, three guys. Introduce yourself. Say, who's got something? If you don't have anything, it's no big deal. Say, I pass. Take some time to pray, and we'll do that for about 10 minutes. All right? Let's, let's jump on it.